Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuance Life. We are so excited to be here with you this week. We will be sharing commemorations and feedback, and we have an awesome interview with Kendra Hennessy, the mom boss. And y'all, I could have talked to her for two hours. I'm so excited to share this conversation. Okay, so let's start with commemorations. First off, we heard from Carissa, who said it almost exactly two weeks before my wedding, I told my controlling and manipulative mother to take a hike. I won't go into the myriad of very good reasons this happened, but I wanted to reach out and say, I'm proud of setting my boundaries firmly and clearly, even if it fell years later than I should have. I feel like we could have a whole section of this show that's like, I set boundaries. Let me share how, and please congratulate me on the setting of my boundaries. Like, I would I would be up for that segment. Absolutely. It comes up a lot tangentially, but... Yes, if you have a boundaries-related commemoration, feel free to send it our way. We also heard from Carla, who said she was sending it after an evening of being with people she had not seen in 30 years. I am in Berkeley for the reunion of the Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary class of 1988, my class. We convened for dinner and conversation, a tour of the new campus. It was humbling and amazing to listen to the stories of struggle and hope, of faithful service, of courageous acts of striving for justice, of ministry thwarted by fear, and lots and lots of the daily love of God's people in far-flung places." And she goes on to tell us a lot more about this event. It's just beautiful. And she also says, I have stayed in ministry serving as a pastor in three congregations. I went through chemotherapy for my leukemia and life is good. I don't often take the time to look back over the whole thing and realize what a remarkable life I've had. I was just a shy farm girl from Iowa. Who would have thought I would do all that? I'm humbled and grateful because I surely didn't do it alone. Thanks for making a way and giving me a reason to write all this down and realize in a whole different magnitude the substance of my life. Which is quite remarkable. And thank you so much for sharing it with us, Carla. That's so beautiful. And that's the power of a commemoration. You get to look back and say, oh my gosh, look at the changing seasons. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. Look at how far I've come. That's why we love these commemorations, y'all. They're so important. We also heard from Anne. She said, I have a commemoration. We live in Vancouver, British Columbia. My daughter just turned 12, and this past summer lost a bit of her ability to play unabashed as only children do. I can't lie that some of me was sad that the carefree child was slipping away. I've thought a lot about Peter Pan this summer. However, she is wonderful, curious, thoughtful, young woman, and our ability to talk and relate on a more even field is wonderful. I'm commemorating this step and change on the way to having a meaningful adult relationship with her. I have great friendships with both my parents and have realized that in terms of years, I will 
spend many more as adult friends with my kids than in the caregiving role of a younger child. I'm excited to see her blossom into her own person and to gain a dear friend. To celebrate this, we took our first mother and daughter trip last weekend to San Francisco where we had a great time together. She is already planning where we'll go next year. Oh, and Anna, this awesome part of her letter, too, where she's trying to say y'all in Canada and it feels forced. It really cracked me up. <laughs> her sentence about realizing that you'll spend more years oh, with, no. as adult friends, that Ooh. really struck me it in a beautiful way. Mm. Yeah. That's I intense. thought that was really terrific. It's really intense. We heard from Meredith, who says, about 10 weeks ago, I started a weightlifting program at home. One of the goals that I set for myself was to eventually be able to bench press the bar. In Olympic lifts, the bar is 45 pounds by itself. And even as an athlete growing up, I had never bench pressed the bar. I always assumed that I just wasn't strong enough. When we were required to bench for sports, I always used a machine and lifted maybe 25 pounds. From the time I was probably 16 years old, I always thought and heard that bench pressing the bar was something that I just wasn't capable of doing, and no one ever really told me otherwise. Until today, this morning, I mentioned to my husband that I was currently using 15-pound dumbbells for chest press and that I hoped to increase the weight that I was using over the next six weeks until I could bench press the bar. My husband told me that if I was using two 15-pound dumbbells for chest press, that I could already bench press a 45 pound bar. I didn't believe him at all, but we went out to the garage to try. He was right. I did it. And I felt strong and proud and thankful for my husband and friends who encouraged me to do hard things. I just wanted to commemorate today as the day when I accomplished something that I have thought I was incapable of for more than 15 years. It feels pretty awesome. It is pretty awesome. Oh, man, that makes me smile. I'm smiling so hard right now. I love it. I love it. Congratulations, Meredith. I love I love it made me feel strong and proud. When I read that sentence, I was like, yes, everything in my yes. brain lit up. Yep. It's so true. And I think she highlights something that happens so often. We think we can't because we've always been told that. And we adopted the, I mean, it reminds me a lot of why I ran for office because I was telling myself all these things and somebody said, no, we all tell ourselves those things and they're never true. And I'm like, oh, it's like kind of consciousness raising. Love it. Finally, we heard from Renee, who says, I recently started listening to your podcast after you shared my sister Gina's commemoration a few weeks ago and have really appreciated your authenticity. Thank you, Gina, for sharing with Renee. Mm -hmm. After almost six months of working in an industry and job that is demeaning and makes me unhappy, I took a leap and applied for a new job I never thought I'd get and got it. These past few months have provided me with a mountain of empathy for people who hate their jobs and feel stuck. Today, I'm commemorating not only a new job, but all the things I have learned and experienced, even in an unhealthy work environment. Thank you for your podcast and taking time to celebrate the little things. Congratulations, Renee. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the phrase, provided me with a mountain of empathy. Mm, I like that, too. And I think she's right. It is a big deal to not like your job. Mm-hmm. It wears on you in ways that are unimaginable. And so hooray for a fresh start for Renee. So we got a lot of really great feedback about our Let's Talk About Sex episode. We got an anonymous email who said, To your listener feeling rejected, I'd like to let her know that she's not alone in being in this difficult position. Your empathetic discussion was well-meaning, and Beth gave a useful side out, useful insight in being the reluctant partner. However, I felt I recognized in her initial message a sense not of a temporary lull, but more of a permanent discrepancy in appetite. I can relate from out the other side, as it were, but I don't have any solutions. It would have been an incredible reassurance to women like me if they were to hear this without the it is fixable in every other mention I've ever found. Even if I do say so myself, we are an excellent couple, good-looking, happy best friends. We're a great team. We value and respect our differences. We prefer each other to anyone else on the planet, but we haven't had sex in over six years, and for several years before that, it was rare and often unsuccessful. Initially, we were always at it. We had amazing sex. 
we both agreed, and lots of it. We were gorgeous together, and being desirable was a big part of our young professional woman in London. He had a reputation as a bit of a stud with his mates and never short of offers when they were out, and he's a big manly man. So when one of his friends mentioned that his previous girlfriend had complained that he didn't want to sleep with her, I preened a bit thinking, well, not me. But I gradually realized that I was always the instigator of sex and probably always had been. I would signal that I was up for it by putting on sexy underwear, and whilst he had never said no, I began to resent that it was only me wanting him. All else was still great, though, and we happily sailed into engagement at marriage. I began to worry more and more. Was it me? Is he going off me? Am I too bossy? Am I a nag? Bad in bed? Who's ever heard of a bloke not being up for it? I sulked. We fought. I'd get upset. He'd get upset. I'd ask why and why. What can I change? I felt slutty for dressing up. I felt rejected, resentful, and suspicious. Whenever we disagreed, it was my winning card. At the end of the day, it was only one of us disappointing the other, and then I'd get mad at his puppy dog eyes of apology. All I needed was a reason, and I could have dealt with it. Maybe he was gay and couldn't face it. Maybe he had a fetish thing I couldn't accommodate or hang hang up we could fix. Is he ill? My frustration would build, culminating in massive, tearful showdowns, sleeping on the sofa, earnest promises of change, and protestations of devotion. After a showdown, we would be considerate to each other until it began to niggle again and the cycle began again. Kids came, as we both wanted, and pregnancy gave a respite to the expectation, which was a relief for both of us. A baby is a good contraceptive at the best of times. And then I feel literally immediately pregnant when we decided it was time for the next one, drunk. So that gave us another good year or more when it was not at the forefront of our minds. Gradually, the lack became problematic again, and we went back into our old pattern every few months. We tried date nights, scheduling, getting tipsy, getting pied, burlesque shows, porn, some things more inspiring than others, but ultimately props rather than a fix. At one point, probably when our kids were the age of your listeners, we agreed to try couples therapy, quite rare in rural England, and another secret we needed to keep. In actual fact, the agreement to try counseling was such a massive demonstration of his love for us that it brought a good six months of peace of mind for me. The advice was the usual, take sex off the table, do touching, but the efforts didn't stick. It all assumed that there was a problem in our connection, which was never the case. We have been always been cuddly and touchy-feely. We hug and kiss, hold hands as much as anyone we know, and genuinely like each other. At other crisis points, he's investigated whether there was anything medically that could be improved, but no joy. It's been very difficult for him, a definite issue for his self-esteem, but like most men, he is able to operate on a day-to-day basis without diving deeply into anything painful or awkward, whereas in my darkest points, it was all I could think about, and the fear that he would meet someone else would fix him and would therefore be irresistible. Obviously, the pressure to perform is the least conducive attitude to getting you in the mood, and over the years, my resentment of it means that the last few times we did begin something, if he didn't lose enthusiasm, my brain would kick in and ruin it instead. There have been times when being flirted with was a soothing balm for my self-esteem, but even emotional cheating was never an option for either of us. I've never discussed it with anyone. I couldn't bear anyone, even my closest friends, thinking of us. It it would diminish him in their eyes and more likely cause speculation along the lines of perpetual questions. I couldn't bear anyone thinking that either of us might be getting it elsewhere when I knew I'm not and he's a terrible liar, so there's no possible way that I wouldn't know if he did. He's vehemently against infidelity, and given the history, we both know we could never forget the portrayal as it wouldn't be just sex. All of the advice out there assumes that there is a temporary phenomenon with the fix, and I'm just not sure there is. He has a low libido but loves me and only me, our kids, and our life together, but that has to be enough. It's not worth jeopardizing all we have built for an ego boost. Also, we're getting older, so being desirable is no longer such a part of my identity. It's depressing in a way, but liberating in another. So what tips do I have? I've never indulged in girl child about sex lives anyway, but all of this is resolutely avoided. No joking about wives going off sex. I no longer read sexy books. It makes me dissatisfied. We roll our eyes and fast forward through the sex scenes in movies or on TV. I avoid the spice it up advice columns. None of it helps. Don't flirt to make yourself feel better. It's risky. Remember why you liked him in the first place. When hormones dial up the horniness, I deal with it myself. I do believe that you can just be as devoted as 
to each other without having sex. We rarely snog anymore in case someone starts to worry whether it's leading, which is sad, actually. I think I'll try and change that. All that said, if he was less than perfect in any other area, could I find myself so sanguine at the prospect of no sex for the rest of my life? I'm not sure. But the years have proved that he's my best friend and the kindest person I know, and at the end of the day, you can get more intimate than our mind meld. I hope your listeners can get this equilibrium eventually if it does prove more permanent for them. I thought this was a very brave message. I thought it was very brave. I think it will be very comforting for people. I think it takes me back to something that I learned when I was practicing in family law for a brief time, which was you just can't understand most people's decisions in their personal life and you don't have to to respect Mm -hmm. them. People Mm -hmm. make very different choices about what they value in their partnerships. And I don't have any judgment for that. Yeah. Well, and on the it's so interesting because on the other end of the spectrum, we got this message that it is a temporary problem and you have a lot of awareness around these medical issues. So we had a listener say, have you heard of vaginismus? I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's involuntary clenching of the pelvic muscles that can make sex or gynecological exams very painful or impossible. I feel like this is very relevant to the topic of your latest episode. You may want to mention it on a future episode. I'm so grateful for the doctor who finally diagnosed me with this and directed me to the resources to treat it. She says, see vaginismus.com. So, I mean... That's the thing. Like sometimes it is this like temporary thing. And so if there's this, there's a little PSA from you for that listener, if you're looking, if you think there's a medical issue, there there might be. And it's, you know, women's issues are discounted. Women's pain is discounted. And so continuing to dig if you really do feel like it's a medical issue is really important. And it's just such a complex thing. I thought that the the portion of the email that you just read, Sarah, about how even when they would get started, if he didn't lose interest she would kind of ruin it by mm-hmm. thinking too much about it. It's a hard it's a hard thing and if if it comes out of the equation in a partnership and both people still feel really rewarded and happy and fulfilled by that partnership, who am I to say anything negative about that? I I think that's beautiful that they have such a connection um that doesn't need that fuel. We also got two pieces of feedback about some past conversations about mothering and the the age of fear. One about my choice to have a home birth. We had a listener, Anne, who had a fragmented placenta, which is, you know, absolutely can be life-ending, and there's hemorrhaging. And she talked about – she tells people that because if she had not been in the hospital just one floor down, she probably would have died. And I I, want to say, unless I wasn't clear enough about with my home birth decision – I absolutely understand that there are moments in childbirth that are so dangerous that being in a hospital can be the difference between life and death. For me, I looked at those risks and I decided that they were small enough and the benefit was big enough that I chose home birth. Not for everybody, but, you know, I think that the the assumption that women who choose home birth don't understand the life-altering dangers of childbirth isn't necessarily true. But she did. She said, I wanted to thank you for reminding me that we all make different decisions, not because we love our children less, but because we all love our children so much. I hope this realis- realization makes discussion I have in the future more understanding, less preachy, and less about me wanting to change your idea or outcome, which I thought was very, very lovely and insightful. And I really appreciate Anne's sort of thoughtful sharing of her own story and how it changed the way she thinks about these discussions moving forward. And that kind of ties into a message that we got from Aaron, who felt that we were judgmental in our conversation about fear-based parenting. And Aaron talked about how not everyone lives in a safe area, and there are lots of concerns, and it's possible that the world is so much safer because parents have been more vigilant. She talks about abduction and kidnapping. And and she just wanted to say, like, she felt like we were 
harsh about folks who are hypervigilant about their children. And it's never our intention to mm. be judgmental about parenting choices. I would never say that everyone's line is going to be the same. So I had a conversation with someone not long ago who talked about um, taking a child to a major metropolitan area and saying, okay, I'm going to leave you right here and I want you to find your way home. And this was a child who was maybe 12. Um, so depending on the 12-year-old, that might have been a really appropriate exercise to see how that child could navigate public transportation or it might have been horrifying. I have no idea what the right choice is. I don't think that my girls are going to be ready for that kind of exercise just because of where we live and how that's not a part of their everyday life. But I don't judge anyone who does that. And We're all just trying to equip our kids the best that we can, mm -hmm. I think. And so if we came across as judgmental in that episode, I want to apologize sincerely because that's exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do when we have conversations about parenting. Well, I think equipping our kids is a great transition into our conversation with Kendra about being a mom boss and the power and empowering aspect of delegating things in your household to your spouse and your child. So that's the conversation we're having next. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Right. Well, we are here with Kendra Hennessy of Mother Like a Boss. Kendra, tell everyone hello and about your site. Yeah, absolutely. So hello. Thank you so much for having me on today. Um, so I started Mother Like a Boss uh, a few years ago. And basically what I do is I like to say that I'm half home management strategist and half positive motherhood enthusiast <laughs> um, because I like to help moms uh, manage their homes better, um, get rid of some of the antiquated feelings about homemaking, bring it into the modern era. But I also really like to encourage moms uh, to be more positive about motherhood and to uh, end that sort of like hot mess mom culture that we live in right now uh -huh. by um, enjoying motherhood. I mean, I don't know about anyone else, but I had kids because I wanted to like enjoy them and, and enjoy children and enjoy motherhood. And some days it doesn't feel quite as enjoyable as others. So I like to get moms back to that place of positivity in their home and with their families. It's so hard because I think it started from a good place, this idea of like, giving ourselves a break and giving yeah. ourselves some grace for when it's hard. But I think you are 100% right that it's gone a little too far. And now, you know, we don't, we don't allow any space for people who enjoy it or allow any space for like, I got this and I'm doing it well, because then you're supposed to feel guilt then because you're making everybody else feel guilty because the default is hot mess. Yes. And we have got, we, we overcorrected. I think you're 100% correct. Yeah, it kind of went from one extreme to the other, which, mm -hmm. and I'm totally with you. Like we, we do not have to live in that like June Cleaver era either. We don't have to have this like perfectionist tendency where like everything has to be perfect all the time. That's not sustainable. 
And right. I can't do, I can't do that. And I don't want to do it. But then I feel like we did, we kind of corrected over to the other side. And I feel like the, that culture is a defense mechanism. It's like a, it's a, def, it's a defense of not being perfect instead of just living in that middle somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. I find that that grace that you were just talking about becomes an excuse. It just becomes excuses instead of true, actual, real grace that all of us moms deserve to give ourselves. We kind of make excuses um, instead. And so I like to well, uh, have the pendulum right in the middle somewhere. And let's be real. When the pendulum is on either extreme, you're easier to sell stuff to. I mean, I feel like yeah. that's really, that's exactly what it is. Like if you are, if you're being told you need to be perfect, well then, oh, what a coincidence. I have the perfect product for you to turn you into this perfect mom. Let me sell you all the things. And if you're a hot mess, ah, what a coincidence. I have the perfect product for you. It turns out most of the time it's wine. It seems like to sell to you so that you can be cool being a hot mess. You know, like, I just feel like that's why when when they're they're pushing us in either extremes, which both are just mechanisms to make us feel bad about ourselves, then they have a product to fix it and I can sell you stuff. I, I really think that when we're all happy with ourselves, we're a lot harder to sell products to. Oh, for sure. I never even thought about that way until you just said that, but that is 100% correct. Like when you're in a, when you're in a place of desperation or you're on one side or the other, you're very easy for someone to target and say like, Hey, I have something to make your life even better than that. Or like to perpetuate the state you're already in. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that's, that's a great marketing technique actually. (laughs) For sure. Kendra, I really like that you have embraced the word homemaking Yeah. And are kind of modernizing the word homemaking. Can you talk a little bit about what that means to you and what's been the reaction to your use of that word? Yeah, that's a really great question. I resisted that word for a long time. So I really didn't like that word. You know, if you had asked me five years ago, if I would be talking about homemaking, I would have totally eye rolled because that was just not what I associated with. I didn't think of myself as a homemaker. And When I started to dive in, when I started Mother Like a Boss and I started to dive into what moms really needed help with, I realized that homemaker is just a word and it is what it says it is. It is just making a home. There are people out there who are homemakers who aren't married, who don't have children. Men can be homemakers. It's just a matter of making your home. And I personally believe that homemaking is more needed now um, than it ever was before. We live very busy lives. We're very full these days. Um, moms are especially have more full lives than ever. More women work than ever before. And so homemaking is actually even more important because I, as a working mom, as a business owning mom, I want my home to be my safe place. I want it to be the place where I feel good. I want my children to feel good in the home. I want them to feel safe and comfortable and like they can laugh and cry here. And so it's not just about the cleaning and the cooking and the meals and all of that stuff. That's just components of home management. The homemaking is more about the way that you feel and the cultivation of a nice place um, where we spend most of our time. Like we spend most of our time of our lives in our home and yet it's the place that gets neglected the most. I, my mother was not a perfect person, but this lesson, her and my grandmother conveyed to me very Mm. strongly. Like, I think that she did such a good job of teaching me, like, this is a job. 
you have to take it seriously. Like you have to understand that how your home feels, how your home looks, how your home is, you know, clean or not clean or whatever. Like this all plays into how not only you feel in your home and your family feels in your home, but other people feel in your home. Like I think that how we teach people, like my family hosting is a really big part of our values, like being hospitable, hosting parties, welcoming people into our homes. And that I think was a way in which she taught me how to make my home a comforting place. Now, and I will say also hosting in my family is the job of both genders. So my mother sort of does the pre-work for the party. My stepfather does all the post-work for the party. Mm -hmm. And like I tell people, like my husband cooks and he does all the food for the party and half of the cleanup. And I'm like, I know why people don't host because if it is the role of only one gender, and I think this is true of home management, then you won't do it because it's exhausting and it's too much. And when you can, when you can open it up and say like, this is just a part of living in this space together as a group, including not just both genders, but both, both, both all ages, you know, kids and adults. And you say like, this is our, this is our journey as the people that live under this space together (laughs) is like to make it clean and keep it running and make it look nice and welcome people into it. Like my mom really conveyed that message. Like we're on a team here and this is our mission and these are the parts of the mission. And I think like we've kind of lost that narrative as like, is it just a, you know, this is just a place we all sleep. Well, no, it's not. It's way more than that. Yeah, absolutely. And that kudos to your mom and your grandma for kind of like instilling that in you. I feel the same way my mom did that similarly. Um, I just was writing a, um, like the script for a video I'm doing. And I was talking about how my mom, like, I don't have any memories of my mom sitting down. Like she was always doing something. (laughs) I don't have a memory of like my mom taking a nap and my, my kids for sure are going to have memories of me taking naps. So I realized my mom naps, believe my mom (laughs) naps. My mom, like, I don't know what it was. My stepfather was also in the Navy, so he was away a lot. And I think I just have this, like, memory of her as, like, doing all the things. But she also instilled in us, like, the responsibility of helping. Like, I was mowing Mm -hmm. the lawn at 12 years old. And my my brother was helping and my sister because my stepfather was away. And she was like, listen, I can't do all the things. So you're going to have to learn to cook and, and make your own lunch and those kind of things. And that was just a part of living in the house. And I, I mean, it's a whole other conversation really, but you know, I feel like now too, people are almost afraid to give their kids responsibility. Like they're Mm -hmm. afraid to make their kids unhappy that I can't, I can't delegate chores to them because they may not like them. And so we don't, we have this relationship with our children where instead of instilling that community aspect of a home where, Hey, it's a community and everyone helps the five-year-old can't mow the lawn. So the adult does. And, but the five-year-old can pick up his own toys and stuff. Mm -hmm. So instead of instilling that, we kind of instill this like martyrdom where they are like, well, I have to suffer for my home and I have to do all the things. And so of course I'm a hot mess because nobody helps me, but you teach people how to treat you. So if your kids aren't treating you that way, it's because we've sort of taught them that. And I've gotten caught up in it as well. And that's why I don't want to live like that anymore. Well, let me tell you, I read a child development person and I thought it was so smart. She called children today, chronically unemployed, 
Like they don't, and it's so important for their self-worth to feel a part of that team, to know how they contribute to the family. And she was just saying like, it's really essential to their psychological health. And even as a person who truly believes this, grew up like this, I was talking to my therapist the other day about making my child practice his piano and he started to cry. And I was just talking about how upset he was. And she was like, wait, do you always get this upset when he cries? And I'm like, I mean, yeah, he's not supposed to cry. And she was like, do you really believe he's never supposed to cry? And I'm like, um, no, but like when she said that, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. When he cries. Even like when it's crying out of frustration because I don't want to unload the dishwasher, I do have this like instinctual like, oh, bad mom, kid's crying. And like, whereas I'm like, no, wait, oh, my God, like, she's right. Of course, he's going to cry sometimes because he's frustrated and sad. And like, that's just a part of it. Like, I cry all the time. I can't believe I'm having this instinctual (laughs) reaction to him crying. But you really have to like get in your head about that self-talk. It's so hard. Yeah. And it's the contrast of, I was um, listening to, and I think I was listening to an audiobook, and they were talking about that same topic. And it was about how your children have to learn contrast because if they don't know what they don't want, then they'll never know what they do want. Mm. And so we now as a society, like we just give our kids everything they want all the time. So then they never learn to desire. They never learn to want, they never learn to work for something and that work for something and not get it. And then say, hmm, okay, what do I need to do differently next time? Like they're just always given everything. And I think that really works the same in the home where if you're just like, well, I just want to make my kids happy and I don't, uh, you know, they play a lot of sports and um, that's the the one thing I hear all the time for like older children, like, well, my 15 year old plays sports and, and he's involved, you know, he works part-time and he goes to school and he works so hard. So I don't think he should have to do any chores. I'm like, well, is he making a mess at home? Like when he comes home and he makes a mess. He does, you don't have to give him 30 hours a week of chores, but you know, just, um, uh, Hey, just also, do, your laundry. do you work? Hello. <laughs> yeah, That's what I say. I'm like, uh, I'm not just sitting around all day doing nothing. Like who's the one driving that kid to all of those practices and games and stuff. So yeah, I just see it as, um, a contrast. And I want my children to understand that they're valued members of this home really. And, and truly I do. And I see the joy in my five-year-old's face when I like give him a job and then I praise mm-hmm. him for it. Kids love praise. People love praise. They love mm-hmm. to be told they're doing a great job. And so when you tell your, you know, when I tell my son, like, hey, buddy, thank you so much for cleaning up the the table after dinner. He is just like beaming. Last night, my husband came home late and it was bedtime and my son was going to bed and he went in to say goodnight to him. And I heard him from downstairs say to my son, Hey bud, your room looks so clean today. Did you clean this all by yourself? Did you pick up all your toys? And he was like, yeah. And he goes, you're doing a great job. And he was so happy that someone told him that. Now, if I had just cleaned up his room for him, he's never going to get that. He's never going to feel that pride of doing something and then feeling good about it afterward. I think that part of what is so positive to me about your use of the word homemaking is that it almost offers permission to make something a priority that's not transactional. As you were talking about kids' mm. sports, I was thinking, you know, a, a big message to kids, a lot of kids right now, is you go to school and you do your sports and that's your work. And so that's all you have to do because you're doing your work. But it's a gift to teach kids that you can do work that's really fulfilling and satisfying that doesn't have a direct benefit attached to it. 
I think about my grandmother, Joy, who had the Homemakers Club at her house every quarter. And we used to laugh so much about this because in our small rural community, the homemakers coming over was like the biggest deal ever. And she would want the lawn mowed and the landscaping done and the fence washed. She would literally set the table for the homemakers like three days in advance and then cover it up with an extra tablecloth so that it didn't get dusty. But she knew that was done. Oh, my God. I immediately thought, but wait, won't it get dusty? That's amazing. (laughs) Oh, no, no. She had a strategy around this. But honestly, I think about all of that so fondly. She was putting... Like, my grandmother didn't need mindfulness apps because she was living it, right? She was living in this way where she was super connected with exactly where she was and what she was doing. And I think it's important to give our kids that same sense of this place that I'm in right now, like you said, Sarah, is not just a place that I sleep and then get up and go do the things that matter. Yeah. My engagement here matters, too. Yeah, I need to go back and re-listen to this when the episode comes out and use what you just said in like my copy because that was amazing. <laughs> that was so beautifully cut. I could cry. That's so beautiful. And it's exactly what I'm trying to get across. I I look back on my own childhood and then I look back on now. Like I live a mile from my mom. So I'm I live a mile away from her. We're very, you know, we see each other multiple times a week. And I Still, when I walk into her house, when I walk into that house that I have not lived in in 13 years, I feel I, I feel like I can take a breath. Like I literally I can let all the breath out because I feel safe there. I feel happy. I feel encouraged. I feel warmth. And that's all from just the homemaking. That's what that is. There's not piles of clutter everywhere, but it's also not spotless. Like I'm not walking in and going like, Oh God, I hope I don't like sneeze the wrong mm-hmm. way. And like get dust on my mom's something like it's just the perfect middle ground of like feeling safety and happiness without feeling like you're not allowed to live there. Cause I don't want my children living in a museum where they're not allowed to touch anything or play with their toys. But I also don't want them living in a place where they feel, um, unhappy coming home where it's like, I love my family, but God, I can't even get to my stuff because there's just piles of clutter everywhere. And I don't have clean clothes because, um, the laundry hasn't been done and uh, any of those things. I want that nice middle ground that feels safe. Honestly, that's the word that comes up. I really realized like, it's very important. Like my values surrounding my home, there's two things that have like surfaced for me over the last few years, which is one, like It's very important to me. I read this on a blog once that it's a 365 day a year home. Mm -hmm. Like I want all the spaces in my home to be used. So I don't have a fancy living room where we don't go into, you know, I don't have like spaces in my home. Every space in my home gets used. But at the same time, I also realize like, it's very important to me that, and I, I feel like I'm doing this well and I'm proud of myself. Like I have three little kids, but you know, well, I can think of three or four times in the last six months where something happened and I hosted a person or an event at the last minute. And it wasn't because I keep everything pristine because I don't. It's like this balance between saying I will welcome in- people into my home without it being perfect. I'm 100 percent comfortable doing that. Like I, you, you can walk into my home and there might you know, like my kids rooms will not be picked up. Cause it's upstairs. I don't yeah. go up there all the time. Like there will be toys around in the playroom cause they live up there and that's where they live. And it, it's not perfect. But at the same time, like the spaces in which guests will be, 
stay picked up most of the time. Like it's a priority to me that these spaces stay a certain way, not perfect, but like enough to welcome people where they'll feel comfortable in the space and they'll not be like, Oh my God, why is this such a disaster? It's gross in here. You know, like it's this middle, like you say, it's like the middle ground of, I want it clean, just living our everyday lives. Not just so I can welcome everybody at the, that's the other thing. Not just so I can welcome anyone at a moment's notice, which I feel like I can do, but also because that's how I like to be in the space. You know, if you're comfortable in the space, then other people will be too. So it's like this, I try to walk this middle ground where we use the space and it's being lived in, but it's like comfortable and picked up enough all the time. And I can welcome someone out and not be like, oh my God, it's a disaster in here. And I feel like that's my really happy middle ground. Yeah. It's like, how quickly, um, can you reset? So I like Mm -hmm. to think of like how, if I had somebody call me, you know, I get off this call and a friend says like, Hey, I'm, I'm in town. I just want to stop by and say, hi, how quickly could I reset? Could I push the reset button on my living room and my kitchen? I'm the same with you. It's like, listen, nobody's coming over to have coffee and going into my son's room. So I'm really not as concerned about that. But like those regular areas, like how fast could I just go like, Oh, cool. Let me just like fold up the throat you know, t- uh, right. the, the throw blankets and how quickly could I just throw the dishes in the dishwasher? Pick up all the pillows off the floor. Yeah. The children have some sort of <laughs> developmental need to dump every pillow on the floor. Why did they do that? Oh my God. Yeah. Like why, why did I just spend all of that money at home goods for you to literally use my throw pillows as like a, a fort brick layer? Like <laughs> why? mine are not even building yeah. forts. They just developmentally need to dump them on the floor. Yeah. I do not understand. I need a child psychologist to explain this to me. Well, they're throw, they're called throw pillows. Or, so I guess true. that's the reason. <laughs> true. Yeah. How do you navigate questions about gender, Kendra? Because mm-hmm. I'll be honest, part of what draws me into your site is I'm not good at this. I really have a hard time focusing on these kinds of practices. I care about them. I'm working at it. I've really made cleaning a priority for myself. I'm really working hard at it. It does not come naturally to me. It comes much more naturally to my husband. He is much better at thinking about what's going on in our house. And so when people say, well, why not? Why mother like a boss? Why not parent like a boss or whatever? What's your, how do you deal with that? I guess the like the logical response, like the response that's like from my brain, that's like, "Mm, this is just the first thing is, um, I'm a mom. And so I, I relate more to moms than I do to dads. I guess. So that was kind of like my initial thought, but then I also, um, part of what I teach with two moms and with moms is that they don't have to do it all. So most Mm -hmm. moms come to me with this belief that I'm going to teach them how to do everything. And what they get from me is a whole lot of, nope, you need to start delegating and you need to start communicating better with your spouse, with your partner, um, whether they're married or, or single, or, um, you know, whether they're married to a woman, like whatever it is, they need to start communicating better about what their needs are as a mom, as a woman, and as a person, I feel like women are not as great at communicating as we all like to believe we are. And mm-hmm. me- men usually get the the bad rap for being bad communicators, but I think that women have those same issues and they don't communicate their needs, they nag. And they um and I don't say that lightly. I've I've fallen into that same trap where what nagging is is it's asking without intention. So you're asking someone to do something without any intention behind it, without any communication behind it. It's like wagging your finger. Like no one wants to be nagged at. I don't, 
I don't want someone to be like, Kendra, you need to do this and wag their finger at me. I want them to communicate what they need from me so that I can help them. And so what Mother Like a Boss does is I really wanted to empower moms to be more confident, to ask for the help, to delegate to their children, to and to learn how to do it. Because there's a whole lot of moms out there who didn't have the value of a mom or a dad in their life teaching them how to do these things. And then we're just thrown into adulthood and motherhood. And then everyone's like, good luck. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, and I see like the gender thing that I see so often is that it's like that se- it's the second shift. And so I have a mm-hmm. lot of friends who are even the primary breadwinners in their family and they've made a choice for their their spouse to stay home or just take a lighter workload. And because this is not communicated to men, like the man is staying home, but they are not doing the household management. Okay. It doesn't like that. No, like it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't work like that. If you're the person, no matter your gender, who is the primary caregiver or the primary person who's staying at home, like it's not just about the kids. There are home management things that you have to do but because that that home management work is so gendered, like you said, and instead of instead of being delegation, okay, home management, this is and it, even if the mom is a CEO, which I try very, very hard in my home not to be the CEO. I don't want to be the CEO. Mm-hmm. I want to be the partner. And so, but there's also so many gendered messages and so many like different gendered expectations because it's like with parenting, you know, if somebody walks into my home. Let's say I'm out of town this week. If somebody came over to my home because my husband was like, why don't y'all come over for dinner? Either consciously or subconsciously, he's going to have a lot more room before they judge him for how our house looks. Mm-hmm. They're going to be like, oh, well, Nicholas was doing such a good job. Look at this. And they're, he's going to get nothing but praise. Whereas if he'd been out of town and I, they come over and I'm, it doesn't matter. It better look good. You know, and it's the same with kids. Like he's like, well, I don't care what the kids look like. And I'm like, yeah, because nobody's going to look at you and be like, oh, my God, who let the kid go out like that? They're going to say, why did Sarah let the kid go out like that? You know, like it's, it's so gendered the way people are judged. And so, you know, but at the same time, I read a really wonderful book called All Joy, No Fun About Parenting. And she said, you know, she the, the writer, Jennifer Senior, is one of my favorite writers, said, yes, you're right. The expectations for women are higher. But the answer is not to drag men up to that level and say, Mm -hmm. we should judge them harshly for that. The answer is to look at how men react to that and how men just say, meh, who cares? And adopt some of that as women as to say like, not that household management doesn't care, but that it doesn't have to be perfect. You doesn't, you shouldn't abandon it. Done is better than perfect. Men are really good at that. And like to let some of that flow into our lives, as opposed to saying, it's not fair. I have to be perfect. So you should too. Like we can learn from each other. I think the middle ground that you're always talking about is often found and sort of acknowledging the gendered expectations between the two parties and adopting a little bit of both. Yeah, you are. You're a hundred percent correct. I have, I have, uh, you know, mother students, female students who, um, in my home management course who message me and say, is it all right if my husband, joins the Facebook group. Is it okay? Like, or uh, they'll tell me like, my husband has watched all of the videos too. And we've done it it together. Like they've literally done it together because their view was let's learn how to manage our homes 
better together so that mm-hmm. it's not just now I'm speaking to women. Like I was like, I, you know, I don't care if he joins, just know every now and then there's going to be like a, an only female post or something, or someone's going to talk about their period or something like <laughs> he's okay with that. It's fine. But the, the main tenants of running your home or cleaning or meal planning is the same, whether you're male or female, um, whether you're a husband or a wife. And it's funny you say the thing about being away because I was away last week for four days. And then I leave next Friday again for four more days. And I came home and well, first of all, it's people always ask like, well, where are your kids? And I'm like home with their father. Where <laughs> like, are your kids? That wears me out. Where are your kids? <laughs> Home with Where do you think they are? Oh my God. Yeah. Like when he goes away, no one asks any questions. But when I go away, it's like, oh, are, is, did your mom come over? I was like, no, he's 38. He's perfectly capable of taking care of two children. He's, well, he's and all right. I always tell people, my husband is an attorney. Do not hire him if you don't think he can stay home and take care of his own children. Well, why would you think he is a, a, a professionally capable person if he cannot handle that task? Exactly. Like he's perfectly capable of like feeding them meals, albeit it might just be mac and cheese every night, but I don't care. It's like, I'm not there. So whatever. And when I came home, there were, I had had flowers on the table, like a vase of flowers and they were like just short of dying before I left. And I remember thinking, oh, I should throw these out. And then I just forgot. And I came home and they're like literally wilting off. They're dead. And I, I laughed and I, I said to my husband, I was like, you know how you can tell that a mom hasn't been in the house for four days. There's dead flowers on the table and <laughs> no one cares. And he let, we both laughed. I wasn't saying like, why didn't you do this? It was, it was hilarious to me because it was a visual representation of like the difference <laughs> between us. Like I would have like cleaned it up. I don't want the dead flowers there. And my kids and him are like, eh, they don't Who even cares? notice it. Who cares? They're having a good time. They, they went on hikes. They went and played like they went and did all those things. And I would have been like, oh, I have to clean up these flowers. Like, who cares? <laughs> so, yeah, it's so funny. Well, I think all of this is wonderful. And I love the really practical tools that your site offers. So tell people where they can find you, Kendra, and what you really want them to know as they come into the mother like a boss space. Yes. Um, so you can go to motherlikeaboss.com. That's where all the stuff is. There's, um, I have a podcast and you can get all the information there. I have a bunch of free resources there and, um, you know, a blog and links to courses and all those kind of good things right on motherlikeaboss.com. Uh, the thing that I really want when people drop on my site out of, like if someone just found it out of nowhere is I want them to feel like it's a fun space. I don't ever want to fee- anyone to come to my business, to mother, like a boss, join the group, whatever it is and feel overpowered by like uh, strategies and tips and hacks. Like I'm hurling stuff at them. I want them to feel like it's a fun place where we're just trying to empower moms. That's really my word. It's my word of the year. Really. When it comes to what I'm trying to do is I just want moms to feel empowered. I want them to feel empowered to make choices that feel good for them. Not what feel good for society or their past or their culture, like really what feels good to them in the moment. And if that means that you are working outside of the home and you are rocking a career, then that's what you do. And if it means that you're staying home with your kiddos and your husband works, that's okay too. I just want you to feel good and empowered to make your own choices. Love that. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. We really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We always end our episodes with a bit of inspiration, and we thought this letter that our listener Debbie sent us over was such a beautiful way to acknowledge one particular struggle that parents go through when they have children in the NICU. It begins, Dear NICU Mom, I see you. I see you coming in for the day with a smile on your face, but so many emotions in your heart. You settle in on your assigned plastic-covered recliner, watching others care for your tiny baby you worked so hard to grow. I see you armed with a bag of distractions, but you rarely pull out the book or magazine because it's hard to escape the ever-present soundtrack of beeping machines, each one reminding you of how far from normal your life has become. I see you carefully wash your baby's hands before you lean over that tiny plastic crib to touch your baby's face, hoping you'll get to wrap her whole body in your arms soon. I see you coming in with a special heirloom dress and milestone blocks commemorating her first month of life. This moment isn't at all how you envisioned, but you are determined to embrace it anyway. I see you leave your chair every three hours to pump milk from your body. Milk you are wondering when your baby will actually be able to drink. I see you throughout the day looking weary, but also soaking in every moment your baby is awake. I see you leaving for the evening, feeling torn between two places, caring for this new life and the lives inside your home. I see how this expectation is changing you. You know more medical terms than you ever cared to know. You know more fear than you've ever experienced, but this place is also refining you. I see how you long for your life to begin outside the hospital, but how you are noticing things you may never have noticed before. You see not only your baby, but your neighbors. You see the baby with the private suite, the suite no parent wants because it means their baby is in dire need. Your trouble is real, but so are the troubles of the others around you. I see you with your eyes wide open, Mom. You are becoming more empathetic, stronger, and are learning how to embrace the moments with more vigor. Most of all, Nick, you, Mom, I see a fierceness about you. That baby of yours is fiercely fighting. You are fiercely fighting for him, and the love that was already in your heart is fiercely growing here. Dear Nick, you, Mom, I see you. Love, Jillian Benfield and Nick, you, Mom, times two. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuance Life. We will be back in your ears over at Pantsu Politics on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Nuance Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuance Life is listener supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuance Life at patreon.com slash The Nuance Life. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.